Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed, they say. We will speak with the subject matter experts about the intersection of finance, geopolitics, and history in order to connect the timeless with the immediate. Our guest on the podcast today is Professor Dr. Charles Ziegler. Born near Plymouth, Indiana, he holds a doctorate in political science and teaches at the University of Louisville, focusing on areas like Russia and Eurasia and the politics of oil. He has held fellowships from the Council on Foreign Relations, Fulbright Program, IREX, and Hoover Institution. Recipient of several prestigious awards himself, he is now the faculty director of the Grawmeyer Award for Ideas Improving World Order, which is given to those who have taken on issues of world importance and presented viewpoints that could lead to a more just and peaceful world. He's lived and traveled throughout Europe, Asia, and parts of Latin America. When he's not busy spending time with his son, he enjoys biking, hiking, and weightlifting. He has spent 30 years of his life studying and practicing Taekwondo in, in the US, Britain, and Korea. His recent books include Civil Society and Politics in Central Asia, which released in 2015, and The History of Russia that came out in 2009, in addition to over a hundred scholarly articles. Links to his books will be in the description below. He recently wrote a brilliant article for the Texas National Security Review titled A Crisis of Diverging Perspectives, U.S.-Russian Relations and the Security Dilemma, which is how I came to know about Dr. Ziegler and his body of work. Dr. Ziegler, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Sir, can you speak a little bit about yourself and your years growing up and what motivated you towards studying political science? And for those of us listening, uh, how should one think about this term in your opinion, political science, and its relevance in the present day reality? Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, north central Indiana in a rural area and became interested in politics. I think it was junior or senior year in high school. Uh, there was a lot going on then. In a way, I guess uh, I'm a product of the 1960s. So the things that impacted me uh, during that period were, of course, the Vietnam War, uh, the racial protests in, in the 60s uh, that some of the uh, older listeners may remember, uh, the Richard Nixon years, um, of course, rock and roll and, and muscle cars. So that was uh, the, uh, the reality that I grew up in, uh, in mm -hmm. that small rural community, you know, worked on farms and so forth. Uh, and then I ended up um, going to Purdue for my undergraduate work. I thought I was going to be an engineer, uh, but then I discovered something uh, called political science and uh, it seemed interesting. Um, I started taking classes on that, thought about American government and maybe going into law, but then had a, a course on uh, Soviet politics. And that really piqued my interest uh, because the Soviet Union just seemed like such an unusual place, just uh, fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, and it was something I stuck with and then, you know, began working on the Russian language and uh, took courses in, in more courses in uh, Soviet politics, Russian history and so forth. Um, and it went from there. 
political science, you ask about that. How should we think about it uh, in terms of today's reality? I think a lot of people don't make a distinction between politics or policy and political science. I mean, political scientists would be like any other scientist. Uh, They try to study what motivates people who do politics. It's a huge range of things that we cover. For example, I teach a course on democratization. And one big question is, why do some countries democratize and others don't? Why do they become democratic when they uh, when they do, uh, the timing of it? Why do some slip backward, which is something that we're seeing uh, in places like Poland and Hungary? Um, and I would suggest um, somewhat in our own country too. Uh, why do people vote the way they do? Uh, why do nations either go to war, uh, conclude trade agreements? Uh, just a huge range of things. But I think good political scientists always try to study this objectively. Uh, they try to develop as much expertise as they can. Uh, and while we're all going to have our own political outlooks or biases, um, generally we try to separate those from our analysis of what is happening uh, out there in the world. What was the reason behind your interest in Russia in particular? Uh, What were the few driving factors? I know you said um, you were uh, deeply interested in Soviet Union. Was it it their uh, system of government or was it their way of life or was it their history and culture that, that attracted you toward Russia? Well, I think it's some of all of those. Um, A good part of it is that Russia, in a way like the United States, is a country of extremes. So you have, uh, for example, extremely talented uh, writers and artists from the 19th or 20th century, you know, the Dostoevsky's, Tolstoy's, Solzhenitsyn's. Uh, And then you have a government that represses that creativity. Uh, You have a country which uh, was the first in space uh, and yet also carried out uh, the collectivization of agriculture, which resulted in you know, a man-made famine, uh, millions of deaths, uh, the gulag, uh, labor camps and so on, the tremendous repression, um, a country that has had this repression interspersed with um, upheavals, the 1905 revolution, the 1917 revolution, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. So, you know, if you look at it, it, it's just um, fascinating from that perspective. It is still, even after the breakup of the USSR, uh, the biggest country in the world geographically, Uh, It's probably got more natural resources, whether it's timber, oil, gas, uh, all rolled together, gold, silver, than virtually any other country. Um, It is really on a par with the United States in terms of nuclear weapons. Um, China is coming up uh, in in that respect, but there's still a ways behind uh, Russia and and the uh, United States. Uh, and then, of course, after I started going there, I met many Russians uh, who are generally, generally very warm, friendly people. Uh, you always have amazing experiences. Uh, 
uh, in that country. And I've, you know, had the chance to travel through virtually all parts of it from the Russian Far East all the way out Magadan, Vladivostok and so on through the central part around Lake Baikal, uh, southern parts of it. And of course, Moscow, St. Petersburg and, and areas around there. And it's after all these years, still a really uh, fascinating country for me. In your article, you say, and I quote, realism holds uncertainty to be a fundamental condition of the international system, a condition that, contrary to the expectations of global optimists, was not resolved with the end of the Cold War, end quote. When I read that, I felt like this is an amazing mental model, a thought filter, if you will, to use when looking at international relations and accounting for the ruthless self-interest of each participant. Can you please break down what you are trying to convey to your readers here and what is your own working model when thinking about uh, great power competition? Well, that's a, a very good question. Um, approaching this, I think, tells us a lot about, or at least gives some insights into how the, the world works. At the end of the Cold War, a lot of us were really optimistic that, you know, with, with a Russia that was no longer communist, uh, which was no longer set off as uh, the other from the United States, you know, as an authoritarian, undemocratic, uh, non-capitalist country, that uh, with its transformation, we would see much of the international tension between the two disappearing. Uh, that would be what in international relations we call a, a liberal institutionalist approach, uh, meaning a perspective that uh, in this sort of uncertain world, uh, countries can build institutions that reduce that uncertainty and help them cooperate. They can build a United Nations. Uh, they can develop free trade agreements. They can uh, build a, an ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, or a European Union uh, that helps to again, smooth over differences that brings their interests together. Where they have divergent interests, you can work it out through rules, through international law, peacefully, and so on. Uh, now, some diehard realists at that point suggested, no, this world really won't come about. That Russia will continue to maintain its own national interests. Uh, those may well in the future clash with the interests of the United States. It's simply a matter of power. And Russia at the present time, meaning in the early 1990s, let's say, uh, has far less power than the United States. Uh, and it's simply a matter of time before it will rebuild that, become a great power once again, uh, and challenge the United States. Uh, in a way, that realist expectation seems to be what came about. Um, and I don't think we have time to get into all the reasons for that. There's been a lot of ink spilled over it. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people arguing uh, that the U.S. took advantage uh, of Russia after the Cold War, um, that it expanded NATO eastward without taking into account Russia's interests, uh, that Russia is a, a very proud uh, international actor. That's part of their national psyche, uh, that they have been a great power for many centuries. And then we would expect that Russia would 
uh, resent uh, a high-handed approach. Um, I think there is something to that argument. Um, but the point is, and realism, uh, which is probably the oldest school in international relations, just simply states that all great powers look out for their interests first. Uh, Donald Trump has talked about putting America first. I don't know of any president in the past who never or didn't put American interests first. They all did uh, in their own way. Uh, he simply had a different way of going about it which from my viewpoint uh, actually did serious damage to U.S. standing uh, in the world. Um, but all nations, whether it's the U.S., China, Russia, uh, France, Britain, um, they're going to put their interests first. Now, sometimes realizing those interests means you can do it best by cooperating with others through the organizations I mentioned. Uh, Take the European Union. Uh, in Britain, they've decided that they can realize they're just better outside of the European Union. Uh, is that the case? I don't know. Uh, 20 years from now, they may decide that that was a mistake and that they would have done better staying within the EU. Uh, do we benefit by remaining members of NATO? Uh, most international analysts would say yes. That is a genuine plus for the United States, even though from some perspectives it may cost us a certain amount to be the leader of NATO. Um, still, it's, uh, it is an alliance that has served our interests. And in that sense, uh, it is instrumental in helping put uh, America first. That's a great segue into my next question, because uh, recently President-elect Joe Biden told NATO's Secretary General in a telephone call, promising U.S.'s enduring commitment to the military alliance. This is a marked change from the threats that they've been receiving over the past three years. But um, many, many uh, reputed news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, have written about NATO becoming obsolete in the not-too-distant future. What is your own view and what are the two changes that you wished were made to the current framework, the way it stands presently? NATO obviously um, is you know, a leftover, if you will, from the Cold War. Uh, NATO's primary purpose, it was set up in 1949, was to defend against the threat from the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviets had the Warsaw Treaty Organization uh, of the Soviet Union, Eastern European countries, and we were face to face with both conventional and nuclear weapons in Europe. Uh, up until the end of the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, I think NATO really struggled to find uh, a purpose at that time. Um, I was on a Council on Foreign Relations trip to NATO, to Brussels, uh, in 1991, I believe it was. And that, that was you know before the Soviet collapse. But already at that time, most of the East European countries had transitioned away from communism. And the officials in NATO were really trying to figure out what, what to do. Would they just uh, shut up shop? Uh, would they develop a, a different set of um, objectives and purposes? Um, some of that was resolved with the crisis in the Balkans, uh, in, in Yugoslavia, uh, where NATO operated uh, out of area, as it was called for the first time in, in 95, and then again in 99. 
Uh, and it's worth pointing out that uh, our NATO allies supported us in Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, the forces, uh, NATO forces have been there as long as we have. Uh, at the height of operations, they had 130,000 NATO personnel in Afghanistan as part of the UN-mandated ISAF. Um, NATO also has operations now in Kosovo, in the Mediterranean. Uh, they have a training mission in Iraq. Uh, they've assisted with the migrant uh, crises in Europe, uh, and they're transporting medical supplies and personnel to help fight uh, the COVID. COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, plus, you see NATO forces uh, position in Poland and the Baltic states uh, to deter Russian aggression. The Obama administration um, put in a, a brigade after um, the 2014 annexation uh, of Crimea. So NATO now is doing quite a few other things rather than trying to deter an enemy that no longer exists. Um, I don't know about two changes that I would suggest in NATO. Um, I, I think one development, though, uh, would be to see members continue to make progress toward that 2% of GDP contributions to the alliance that they agreed on uh, at the summit meeting in 2014. Um, in a way, Trump's sort of clumsy uh, attacks on NATO uh, have encouraged these countries to um, to ramp up their expenditures. And that, in a way, gives uh, Mr. Biden a bargaining chip as he comes into office. Uh, so that, um, that, I think, is in a way a good thing. Uh, although alienating your allies is, is uh, never very productive. Uh, a second issue, I guess I would say, is that I, I think continuing to suggest that we're going to um, include Georgia and Ukraine uh, as members of NATO is simply a bad idea. Now, obviously, the leaders in those countries, I think, would uh, very much like to become part of NATO because that would then trigger the guarantee that an attack on one is an attack on all. But since Georgia and Ukraine uh, are within Russia's uh, immediate national security uh, interests and, uh, and border on Russia, um, I really think that would be a bad idea. Both countries also have um, territorial uh, issues with Russia, um, and both uh, have Russian forces in one form or another uh, on their territory. So this would simply be opening a can of worms that I think would uh, be very bad for the United States uh, and for NATO. Let's zoom into that. Uh, doesn't expanding NATO make Europe more secure or does it make Russia more insecure? And does it really amplify the risk of a miscalculation on the on the part of Kremlin? I, I was, I, I'm wondering what are the different variables that are a part of this complex matrix? And is there a risk versus reward equation that the U.S. is trying to chase in its expansion of NATO, especially when uh, considering the states on uh, Russia's borders? Well, that was part of what I dealt with uh, in that paper that you mentioned, the one that came out in the Texas National Security Review. Um, and there I argued that the expansion of NATO eastward could be seen as a security dilemma. 
uh, a concept that in international relations basically suggests that um, you know a nation, one nation, let's say, uh, being insecure and seeing another nation, for example, build up a weapon system, uh, will then counter that action by building up uh, a similar weapon system uh, in order to ensure their security. But then country A, seeing the second country, country B, develop that weapon system, decide that they must have a more powerful one. And then they develop that. And then country B, uh, becoming more insecure, tries to enhance its security by building a similar or more powerful system. And you have a um, basically an arms race uh, in which neither country becomes more secure. Uh, that's why it's, it's a dilemma. Uh, expanding NATO eastward, in a way, enhanced the security of the Eastern Europeans who had been part of the Soviet bloc, uh, who had been in the Warsaw Pact and who had been eh, basically part of a, a Soviet empire, I think. Uh, and so they had certain reasons that they wanted NATO membership. One, obviously, was that they were uh, justifiably fearful of uh, Russian resurgence. And at some point in the future, uh, Russia may try to reexert its influence as it's doing now. And so it would be a good idea to have NATO membership. Uh, another reason I think they did it was that they saw that also as a way into the European Union. And for many, it was probably even more important to get uh, European Union membership, uh, which would help uh, develop their economy. But by expanding eastward that uh, I think and, and people would argue about this but I think it did make Russia more fearful or, or at least it gave Russian leaders uh, the pretext to argue that the US and NATO uh, were becoming more aggressive and threatening Russian security uh, and then that uh, in turn, I think, led to aggressive actions in Georgia uh, with the war in 2008. Uh, and then in Ukraine uh, with the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014 and, and the um, insertion of irregular Russian forces uh, into southeastern Ukraine. So you're right. This is a, a really a complex matrix. Uh, people are divided. And there's been a, a lot written on this. Some people have done some very good archival work on it, and interviews and so on. Um, and there are pretty good arguments on both sides. And some simply saying that, no, uh, Russia has simply used it as a pretext uh, for trying to rebuild its empire along its western and southern boundaries. Uh, and others like John Mearsheimer at uh, the University of Chicago arguing that any great power uh, seeing a military organization, uh, an alliance move closer and closer to its borders uh, would react um, to try to uh, preserve its security. And speaking of moving closer, uh, what do you make of the Trump administration's move to ship the, shift uh, the troops that have been stationed in Germany to Poland? Does that make the status quo between Europe and Russia fragile, or does Russia not read too much into it? Well, I think this is, simply put, a political maneuver uh, on Trump's part. Uh, there isn't really any real strategic significance to it. 
that I can see. Uh, we know that, that Trump was very unhappy with Chancellor Merkel, uh, who resisted uh, his entreaties to build up uh, German military expenditures uh, up to the 2% level. Uh, and there are a number of other reasons um, for tensions between the U.S. and Germany, or specifically between Trump uh, and Germany. Uh, construction of the, the second uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, natural gas pipeline and, and some other issues. Um, so I think that was simply something Trump did in a fit of peak. Uh, Poland has really welcomed uh, U.S. support uh, after, you know, what Russia did in Ukraine in 2014. Um, U.S. and NATO have, have put a total of four brigades in Poland and the three Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and rotate forces through there. Uh, I've talked to soldiers who have been there and just said the welcome they get from the Poles is amazing. Uh, Polish officials have said they'd like to have a, a U.S. military base on their territory, uh, perhaps an entire U.S. division uh, rather than a brigade. Um, so the Poles are are pushing this. And this is, you know, in part what happened earlier, too, with the expansion of NATO. The East Europeans uh, pushed it. Uh, it wasn't so much a deliberate policy under the Clinton or George W. Bush administration, um, but there was really demand uh, by certain countries within Eastern Europe for it. So I would suggest it doesn't really shift the strategic balance uh, or raise the threat uh, to Russia. This is more a matter of, of U.S. tensions uh, with certain members of the NATO alliance, in particular Germany, uh, and again, a, a much closer relationship between the U.S. and Poland. Um, I've noticed that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, he, uh, I don't know, the Western media tries to uh, paint him like a, like a dictator and a despot. But uh, if you hear him speak, he usually brings a flavor of history into his, uh, into his thinking and uh, the way he speaks, tries to use asymmetry to his own benefit. And at the beginning of your article, uh, you mentioned that one of the ways Russia counterbalances America's attacks against, against it is by supporting rogue states like Iran. I think that the, the political consensus ac across the spectrum on Iran is not as bipartisan as it is on China. How do you think the next few years will shape up um, US policy on Iran, especially uh, in the light of the killing of Soleimani and more recently their top nuclear scientist? Well, I wouldn't expect major changes in the US-Iranian relationship um, in a Biden administration. Um, but um, President-elect Biden has indicated that um, he would like to rejoin uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement uh, that Trump pulled out, us out of um, a couple of years back. Um, this is, again, an area where I think Trump's uh, sort of blunt approach has positioned Biden um, to better uh, or to secure a better deal between um, you know the the uh, ourselves and the other members of the JCPOA agreement and uh, and Iran because now for Iran uh, obviously they want us back in 
they would like the sanctions uh, eased. So this gives Biden some leverage. And if he's smart, you know, I think he definitely is. And he's got some very smart people he's going to surround himself with. Uh, I think they may be able to leverage a better deal, maybe a longer term one than they had before. Uh, but I think they'll need to move fairly quickly uh, on this. Uh, Iran is still a very troublesome actor in the Middle East. Uh, Iran does not have all that many friends. Uh, most of uh, the Sunni Middle East, in particular uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, uh, and others are very wary of Iran. Um, and Iran is, is again, causing problems uh, in many parts uh, of the Middle East. Um, Israel, obviously, is a factor here, and U.S. support for Israel, um, which may be modified somewhat in a Biden administration, probably not catering quite as much to Israeli interests as, as the Trump administration did. Uh, but still, we're, we're not going to abandon our support for Israel. Uh, and Israel's chief security concern in, in the region is obviously uh, Iran. And Israel's much more concerned, I think, about what Iran does uh, in terms of conventional weapons than uh, Iran's ability to develop a nuclear capability, because Israel already has a significant uh, nuclear um, weapons capability uh, that it could use to, to defend itself. Sorry, I'm jumping back and forth here, but uh, Russia recently proposed to extend the New START treaty by one year on condition that the United States reciprocate by putting a freeze on the number of nuclear warheads. How important is it uh, for the two great powers to come to a fresh agreement, especially after the U.S. withdrawal uh, from the anti-ballistic uh, missile treaty? The, the original arms control agreements that were developed in the late 60s and 70s, basically uh, in the Nixon administration, simply capped strategic arms. Strategic meaning those that um, are basically uh, intercontinental, meaning uh, either missiles that could go from the US to Russia or Russia to the US, uh, bombers that could do the same, uh, or uh, missiles launched from submarines. That's the triad the three legs of the uh, of the nuclear weapons uh, that we have. So um, planes, bombers, if you will, um, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and then submarine launch ballistic missiles. So we had several rounds of treaties uh, prior to the Soviet breakup. At the time of the Soviet breakup, we also began actually to reduce nuclear weapons. <clears throat> the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, that Reagan and Gorbachev signed in 1987 was a major breakthrough because it was the first to eliminate an entire class of nuclear weapons, intermediate range weapons, which basically were within the European theater, uh, Soviet missiles that could hit Europe, but not the U.S., uh, and U.S. and NATO missiles that could hit the Soviet Union. That was a treaty that uh, Mr. Trump just pulled us out of, uh, again, recently uh, charging uh, with a good deal of, of support this time uh, from our NATO allies that Russia had indeed violated 
that treaty by building um, some new uh, intermediate range missiles. Um, the New START treaty, which uh, is being talked about now about extending it, was a, a treaty signed during the Obama administration that built on uh, earlier agreements George W. Bush had signed in Clinton. Um, and it brought the total number of active nu nuclear warheads, meaning those not in storage, down to 1,550 uh, warheads with a smaller number of launch vehicles, uh, whether these would be missiles or, or uh, planes or what have you. Um, it was a 10-year treaty. It uh, has verifiable provisions. Um, again, they don't countries don't trust each other on this sort of thing. Uh, they have provisions for how to make sure that each side is abiding by it. And since it was a 10-year treaty signed in 2010, uh, it will expire in February of next year. Uh, now, the Russians would like us to extend that. Most uh, U.S. arms control experts or arms experts agree this is a very important treaty. It should be extended. It's the last major arms control agreement that we have um, that has reduced uh, nuclear weapons. It lowers the chances of accidental launches, provides for verification, as I said, uh, and maintains some lines of communication, which is very important. Um, uh, right now, both sides are modernizing their nuclear forces. Uh, we're seeing a form of a technological arms race, uh, including into space with a number of new weapons that I discussed somewhat in my article. The Trump administration had wanted China to be included uh, in the INF Treaty. That's one of the reasons that they pulled out of it. Uh, I think Russia would have preferred that, uh, but Russia wasn't really going to uh, publicize this. Um, and then the Trump administration also said that they thought China should be brought into the New START Treaty since China is expanding its nuclear force. But China, we don't know exactly the numbers, but they have maybe 300 nuclear warheads, which is about a fifth of what either the U.S. or uh, Russia has. So China is not likely to agree to uh, put caps on or reduce its um, strategic nuclear weapons when they only have a fifth of what we or the Russians do. So what we need to do and what I would hope we would see in the Biden administration is, uh, again, renewal of the New START Treaty, um, even beyond uh, one year, maybe to a five-year period. <clears throat> and then um, conducting bilateral relations with both China and Russia, uh, not together, but each country separately in order to try to uh, get uh, limits on strategic weapons uh, developments. And, and I doubt that you're going to get reductions out of China, but it would be a good idea to at least try to limit their uh, nuclear modernization program. So one of your areas of expertise uh, is the politics of oil. How does the reliance of Europe on Russia as a key provider of natural gas um, antagonize America? And how do you think the U.S. will want to upset this uh, apple cart in the future? Well, this was an issue during the Soviet 
era. Um, I mean, the pipelines that they have, the oil and gas pipelines, go back all the way to uh, the 1960s and were developed then. Um, and the U.S. was always concerned that this might uh, tie Europe into a dependence on Soviet oil. Uh, that uh, that relationship accelerated after the 1973 uh, Arab oil embargo, uh, where the Middle East was seen as being problematic. And so, you know, pipelines from the Soviet Union were seen to be more reliable. And the Soviets never interrupted um, the supply to, um, to Western Europe. Now, they did interrupt supplies to Ukraine in 2006 and, and 2009. Uh, in large part over the Ukrainians' unwillingness to pay uh, for uh, the natural gas. Um, but what we've seen recently is it, it's, I wouldn't say that it's antagonized America, this, these supplies. Uh, it has antagonized the Trump administration. Um, the Trump administration was especially concerned about this uh, new pipeline under the Baltic, the Nord Stream 2, which is 90% complete uh, and will provide uh, natural gas uh, to Germany. Um, I think what Trump was more interested in was profiting off the sale of liquefied natural gas coming from the United States, uh, from the uh, fracking business here. Uh, and selling that to Europe. Uh, I, I really think he was less concerned about the security dimension than he was about simply uh, trying to ramp up uh, sales of, of LNG. So um, I believe the Biden administration will be less concerned uh, about completion of the Nord Stream 2 uh, project. And while we may continue to um, push supplies or sales of liquefied natural gas to Europe, um, it may be less significant than what we saw in the Trump administration. Uh, I just add to that this sort of energy uh, dependence, if you will, it really goes both ways. It's energy interdependence. So if Europe is uh, somewhat dependent on uh, Russian oil and gas, and the natural gas is really more significant because it's harder to uh, find substitutes for. Uh, Russia itself is very much dependent on sales to Europe uh, for its uh, economic health. So that's that's something I think we don't often uh, take into account, this interdependence. And staying on the subject of oil and gas, how do you visualize what is happening in the Arctic? The leadership role, let's call it, that uh, Russia has taken on policing uh, the routes, the Arctic routes, by ramping up its icebreaker fleet uh, all the way to securing the oil and natural gas assets. Is it that they are trying to achieve regional, regional hegemony or is it more of a forward play for their strategic partner, China? Well, the Arctic is really a key strategic area uh, for Russia. Uh, they have the longest uh, Arctic border of any country. Uh, they're rebuilding military bases in the region. Uh, they have more icebreakers uh, than anyone else in the world. I mean, Russia has more than 40, and they're, they're building additional ones. The United States has just two icebreakers, and they're small and not in very good shape, and, and China has two. Uh, 
Um, the region has a lot of, of oil and natural gas, um, possibly something like 15% of the world's supplies. Now, the big question, though, is, is that really going to be viable over the long term? Um, General Secretary of the UN, uh, Guterres, just came out uh, with his statement about um, where we are with climate change, and it certainly looks dire. Uh, we may have reached a turning point where oil and gas hydrocarbons are going to be less significant to the world economy going forward. Uh, and maybe we're just behind the curve on this. Maybe the Russians and the Chinese are, uh, although certainly the Chinese have, have done everything they can to diversify their energy supplies, not put all their eggs in, in one basket. But I know definitely the Russians are, are looking forward to uh, the revenues that they can earn uh, by uh, shipping uh, liquefied natural gas uh, through uh, the northern sea route uh, as, it, as the ice up there melts because of global warming. Uh, the Chinese are very interested in uh, that transportation route. And so this is, again, an area where China and Russia can partner, uh, but whether, where there are some tensions, too, because the Chinese claim to be a near-Arctic state. Uh, the Russians don't seem to be terribly enthused about that, uh, that idea. They really, you know, as you said, want hegemony uh, in that region. They believe that... Um, that it, it is a Russian region, uh, and they're determined to exploit that. Uh, and while they don't um, challenge the United States in the region, uh, we are definitely challenged in the sense that I think we just cannot compete very well uh, with the Russians in the Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. Staying on that uh, U.S.-Russia-China dynamic, um, I, I recently listened to a lecture by Stephen Kotkin, uh, the author who wrote the book on, about Stalin. And he was asked, why can't Russia and America become partners in containing China, just like China sided with the U.S. in containing the Soviet Union back in the 70s? And to this, his reply was that it would happen only when a few unprecedented geopolitical events occur. Not sure what he was referring to there, but I was wondering if you have thought about this and what is your own view on this matter? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, Stephen Kotkin is, is really a top specialist on Russia and his, his biography of Stalin, two volumes so far and another one to come out soon. It, it's just superb. I've read both of um, the very, very long biographies that he had. Um, on Russia and China, they have a very close what they call strategic partnership. Um, I mean, these are authoritarian states that resent U.S. global hegemony uh, and that want a multipolar world. Uh, Russia and China have many common interests. Uh, the U.S. and Russia have very few common interests, and we have many that clash. Um, if you look at the, the period back you know, when Nixon made the opening to China in the early 1970s, you had two... Uh, large, powerful states, uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S., and China as a small third leg in that triangle. Uh, now the situation is, is reversed. Um, China and the U.S. are much closer to being equals. 
Uh, Russia is the small third leg in the triangle. Uh, and the U.S. It seems to be slipping somewhat while China is growing. So um, it, it would be possible, and I know some uh, Russian scholars who have made the argument that, uh, that it might make sense for Russia and the U.S. to partner uh, against China, to balance against them. Uh, but at the present time, as I said, there's, we have so many clashing interests with Russia uh, and Russia and China both have so many clashing uh, as interests with the United States and common interests that, that draw them together. In addition, Russia and China both believe and often state that the time of Western liberal democracy uh, is passing. And if you look around, maybe it is. If you look at the response to uh, the COVID virus, if you look at economic inequality, political paralysis, uh, social tensions, a rise of, of populism in Western democracies. Uh, and there certainly the U.S. inability to get many basic things done, whether it's infrastructure or healthcare or race relations. Um, you can see where their, their perspective has some validity. Uh, our time may be uh, passed. I don't think many Americans want to contemplate that, but that's a possibility. And uh, in speaking about great power competition, uh, Graham Allison, he wrote the book about the Thucydides trap. Whenever there are two great powers, they usually collide. And he presents like 40 uh, examples from history where a uh, majority of the cases have uh, ended in a military conflict. What is your own view on this matter? And do you see uh, U.S. and uh, China uh, being locked in a Thucydides-like trap? Well, yeah, Allison's uh, um, ideas and, and the, the project that he did at Harvard on the uh, Thucydides trap got a lot of attention. Um, and as you mentioned, he showed that looking back over history, trying to find comparable situations. Again, this comes out of realism, the argument that a... Uh, rising power is going to challenge a status quo power um, and that more often than not, this can result in war um, and does in, in three-fourths of the cases that uh, Allison and his colleagues looked at. Yes, that's certainly likely. It, it's possible. Uh, a couple of things, however. One is that the U.S. and China could, I think, through um, negotiations, avoid major conflicts of interest in the Western Pacific. Uh, we are a Pacific power, but uh, as is China. But in a way, we do have some common interests in terms of trade, keeping the, the sea lanes open, for commerce. That's always been a goal of U.S. foreign policy, and it is for China now. Uh, I think sometimes we simply view competition with China as being threatening to us, whether it's what they're doing in Africa or Latin America uh, or what they're doing in Southeast Asia. And, and I'm not certain that it is always uh, against U.S. interests. Uh, there are areas where they could uh, combine. Uh, also, the fact that we're separated by several thousand miles of water uh, suggests that we're not going to see major land battles like you did in Europe in the past, the uh, cases that Allison uh, draws on. 
uh, in his work, um, it would have to be a naval battle. Uh, I cannot see uh, any time in the near future China landing troops uh, on you know, the shores of the western U.S., in Oregon or California, uh, nor can I see the U.S. Uh, undertaking a, a invasion of the Chinese mainland. That simply isn't going to happen. What you might see would be occasional limited clashes over uh, rights of passage uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, Taiwan is clearly the most likely flashpoint, um, but I don't know when, um, if it came right down to it, would the U.S. go to war to defend Taiwan, which we actually acknowledge is a part of China? Um, so far, the Chinese and the Taiwanese have been uh, clever enough to avoid uh, clashing um, you know, over that issue. But were uh, Taiwan to declare full independence and the U.S. to support that, that could be uh, the start of a fairly nasty military conflict. What are some of the exciting projects that you are working on currently? Well, I mentioned about the U.S. as a Pacific power. One thing that's puzzled me is why isn't Russia a Pacific power? I'm not sure I'm going to name the, the, the book that, but I'm working on a book-length manuscript on that topic. Uh, over the years, over many years, Russia has uh, tried to assert its presence and influence in the Pacific region but it's never really managed to do it very well, the way the United States has. Uh, the Russian-American Company was founded in uh, 1799, uh, in the sense Russian-American, in that it was a Russian company uh, that the Tsar approved of, uh, and they were you know, operating in Alaska uh, and all the way down into California. They had designs on Hawaii at one point, um, but it never really came about. So this project would get at the question of what makes a regional power. Uh, I'm using a broad historical sweep to explain why Russia attempted many times, but never really succeeded in becoming a Pacific power the way the United States did, the way that Japan was at a certain point, or the way that China is now becoming a, a Pacific power. I uh, also have a number of smaller projects. I'm interested very much in US foreign policy, uh, especially sanctions, uh, and also issues of comparative democratization. Just wondering, what are the three major sources of information that you read and refer to in order to form your own worldview? Trying to read very widely. I always encourage my students to look uh, beyond um, the U.S. Uh, so, I mean, I often like to look at, at uh, Russian publications or uh, German or British. Um, but on a regular basis, I'd say uh, three would be the New York Times, uh, National Public Radio, uh, and then the magazine Foreign Affairs. And when you research um, your books, what is, what is your process like? That's kind of difficult to say. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I always try to, though, look at the broader context. Mm -hmm. uh, when I read books or articles, I mean, most articles are going to be fairly specific, but books which are so narrow and don't take into account the broader context, that I think is a missed opportunity. 
So when I do a project, I always try to read widely enough to consider the broader context. What other factors uh, may be influencing what's going on? What is it that we're overlooking? Uh, and so I, I think context is really important, whether that is sort of comparative context, uh, which certainly the U.S., uh, I think Americans in making, say, healthcare policy could really benefit uh, by looking at the way a lot of the Europeans have done it or the way that uh, some Asian countries have, have done healthcare, uh, or looking historically. Uh, where you uh, see how we developed certain paths, certain ways of doing things uh, that then locked us into a mindset uh, that then keeps us from uh, adjusting or adapting. Social protections. Uh, or do you mean something like what Stalin tried to do? There's a huge difference. But that all gets lost in sort of simplistic discussions. Uh, that we often have uh, in this country. And again, uh, historically, um, Americans don't understand uh, much of their own history. Um, in terms of race relations, we don't understand uh, some of the terrible things that happened uh, during Reconstruction uh, against newly freed uh, Black Americans, uh, against the whites who were trying to help them down there, uh, the rise of the KKK. Uh, this has a long history, but again, we we tend not to learn very much of that history, and so we don't learn. That's the point. And that is exactly why the work that you do is so so important. Um, uh, in speaking about books, what are the few books that that you find yourself recommending to your friends, especially those that are not from your own field of work? If I just said on Russia, and I do hope people read on Russia, uh, we had mentioned uh, Kotkin's biography of Stalin. I think that's, that's great if you want to read through uh, about a thousand pages each. Uh, if you want something smaller, Angela Stent's book, Putin's World, that just came out is really very good. And then Fiona Hill, uh, who was uh, in the National Security Council, and, and Clifford Gaddy's uh, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, are really good. I also like to read a lot, like I said, on American foreign policy or just politics more generally. Uh, one really good book I recently read was Anne Applebaum's uh, Twilight of Democracy. Uh, Applebaum is, uh, divides her time between the U.S. and Warsaw uh, and London and just writes beautifully about uh, European politics, American politics, um, and that is really a great comparative uh, discussion of um, the growth of populism and authoritarianism in much of the Western world today. Uh, Fareed Zakaria's recent book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, uh, I think is, is really very good. Um, not all the way through it, but uh, he brings together a lot of uh, ideas. And I, I like biographies. Ron Chernow is especially good, uh, whether it's on, on George Washington or any others. But uh, right now I'm finishing up his biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, in terms of nonfiction, I like all sorts of things. But uh, I just saw that Christopher Buckley has a new novel out, apparently a takeoff on Trump's relationship with Russia 
Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to reading that. What is the best place for my listeners um, to connect with you and interact with you? Well, they can go to my webpage at the Department of Political Science, University of Louisville, which is just louisville.edu. Um, and then scroll down, go to the faculty and scroll down. Uh, Ziegler, I'm at the very end. Um, and they can go to my webpage. Uh, my email is there. And I check email pretty regularly. So if they would like to contact me, that would be the best way to do it. Uh, Dr. Ziegler, I, I really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed being with you. And um, I hope you have many listeners and, uh, and continue your podcasts. This is a great service.